we're continuing our studies in the book of Hosea, and we come to Hosea chapter uh, 3. So if you um, are uh, visiting this morning, if you turn to the book of Psalms and follow Psalms forward, you come to Jeremiah, Lamentations, and Ezekiel, which are big books apart from Lamentations, but uh, then Daniel and then Hosea. So that's Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Hosea. So Hosea chapter 3, and as you're looking that up, can I welcome Pastor David Cameron and Allison uh, and the kids with us this morning. David was our student uh, assistant here when he was at uh, the Irish Baptist College and is now pastor in Carr, and it's just lovely to renew fellowship with them uh, as a family today. So Hosea uh, chapter 3 and verse 1. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for fifteen shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterwards, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Amen. And we know God will always bless the reading of his own inspired word. You'll remember from our last study in Hosea 2, we paid a visit to the divorce court. Uh, In the dock stood Israel, the adulterous people of God, who like Homer, or like, sorry, Hosea's wife, uh, Gomer, had been unfaithful to her rightful husband, Yahweh. Yahweh is the one who passes sentence on his unfaithful wife in chapter 2 in verse 15 and takes her into the valley of trouble, Achor, into the valley of trouble where he will strip Israel economically, uh, reduce her to poverty and slavery to the condition that he first found her in, in Egypt. But that would not be the end because the valley of trouble would become a door of hope. And out of that valley of trouble, God would reconcile His people to Himself. Now, reconciliation is never easy. In a marriage uh, where one partner has been unfaithful, it's uh, very, very difficult. She has wrecked my life and ripped my marriage apart. I don't think I have hated anyone in my life, but I hate her. So wrote Julia Carling, the wife of the uh, rugby, English rugby captain Will Carling in 1995 over his alleged affair with Diana, Princess of Wales. Now, those words reveal something of the anger that so often accompanies marital breakdown. It's not just that jealousy is aroused, it's the wounded pride the feeling of rejection and betrayal, the disappointment that someone that you have invested so much in and spent so much time on has left you for another. 
And those of us who have been fortunate in our marriages can so often fail to appreciate the feelings of hostility, anger, indeed hatred that have been generated by such a betrayal. I don't think I have hated anyone in my life, but I hate her. Now, that, of course, is what makes reconciliation so difficult. Huge barriers of resentment and hatred have to be overcome. You ask any pastor or marriage guidance counselor, and they will tell you that there is no word easier to say than reconciliation, but harder uh, to achieve. And that's what makes Hosea 3 so utterly amazing. Here we have a description of a marriage reconciliation. In fact, we have two reconciliations. A reconciliation between Hosea and his estranged wife, Gomer, and a reconciliation between Yahweh and his estranged uh, people, Israel. And I want you to notice three things about this reconciliation. First of all, the initiative that was taken to achieve this reconciliation. Look at verse 1. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn aside to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Here God commands his prophet to go and show his love to his wife again. Now, this was extraordinary. Gomer was an adulteress, a prostitute, a harlot. From the outset of their marriage, she had played fast and loose with Hosea's affections. Any number of men had enjoyed her favors, and out of her three children, Hosea could only be sure that he was the father of the first. After several years of this farcical relationship, she left him and was now cohabiting with another man. She was, as they would say in the street, shacked up with somebody else. No doubt he was little more than the flavor of the month as far as Gomer was concerned, and she would also ditch him when some younger and more attractive gigolo came along. The NIV says, go show your love to your wife again. Now, that's a little misleading. The Hebrew is simple, is the simple imperative love. It's not that he loved her at a distance. He had no more love to show. Gomer was a prostitute, and at this particular time, no matter how much he might have loved her in the past, he had little affection for her now. There's no suggestion in the original that Hosea still longed for this wanton woman at a distance. He may have been glad to get rid of her. Their separation may have come as an enormous relief to his tortured emotions. Yet when the message of God comes to him, it insists that he should love his wife again. In spite of the fact that she was loved by another, in spite of the fact that uh, she was the guilty party, in spite of the fact she was a prostitute, Hosea initiated reconciliation with his wife. Did she deserve it? Certainly not. Did she ask for it? No indication whatsoever. It was Hosea who went to her and loved his unfaithful wife. You see, love must take the initiative if reconciliation 
is to be achieved. Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man. Now remember, please, this is a prophetic drama. Hosea's uh, initiative in reconciliation with his wife was prophetic of God's initiation, uh, initiative, sorry, in reconciliation with Israel. Look at verse 1 again. Go love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. You see, just like Gomer, Israel had been unfaithful to God. She had uh, uh, pursued other lovers and false gods and had broken her marriage vows to Yahweh. There's a bit of irony here. Israel had spurned God's love. She had cast it aside. The Lord loves the children of Israel. And what do the children of Israel love? Cakes of raisins. Israel loves raisin cakes. The authorized version's rendering flagons of wine is wrong. It's cakes of raisins. These were a kind of delicacy, a bit like Florentines without the chocolate, that were given out at the religious festivals at the worship of the false god Baal at the shrine. God is implying that Israel had spurned his love for the little treats that were dished out at the shrines of Baal. Here is a husband who loves his wife with an undying devotion. And on the other hand, here's a wife who, like the lady in the advert, loves Cadbury's milk tray and would gladly share her affection with any would-be Casanova who would be uh, 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 willing to bring the chocolates to her. It would be laughable if it wasn't so tragic. The Lord loves the children of Israel. And what do the children of Israel love? Raisin cakes. And yet this jilted husband refused to give up on his wayward wife. And Hosea's um, initiative with Gomer was just a tiny reflection of what God's initiative with Israel would be. After the great um, punishment that we heard about last week, when God would take Israel into the wilderness, he would come again to them in that valley of trouble and he would reveal his love to them. This, of course, points forward when God took the initiative and came into our world to reconcile not only the Israelites, but to all who would trust in the Lord Jesus. Like Gomer, Israel did not deserve God's love. Like Israel, we do not deserve God's love. Like Gomer, Israel did not seek God's love. Like Israel, we did not seek after God's love. There was nothing in Gomer to attract Hosea to her. And there was nothing in Israel to attract God to her. And there's nothing in us to attract God to us. His love is not something that we have excited in Him any more than Israel excited God's love or Gomer excited Hosea's love. We don't deserve it. We didn't seek it. Nothing in us provoked it. It was a unilateral, voluntary uh, uh, initiative on the part of a gracious God. To use the language of the New Testament, it was an act of grace, undeserved, unmerited favor of God. As B.B. Warfield says, a pure gratuity from God. 
If you love God at all this morning, you can be sure the reason you love Him is because He first loved you. God took the initiative in sending Jesus, just as Hosea took the initiative with Gomer. Hosea, in his domestic situation, was pointing forward to a time when God would show his love to the Israelites once more. As we shall see, uh, he will show that love in sending Jesus, not, of course, just for the Israelites in northern Israel, but for their sister nation, Judah, and then in Christ going out into all the world to include and embrace Gentiles as well. But let us understand this. Israel did not deserve God's love. She had played fast and loose with the affections of God. Israel would not seek after God. God would seek after her. Israel did not initiate this new relationship with God. God initiated it with her. Verse 1, love a woman even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. You know, much that we call love today is little more than a tribute paid to the attractiveness of the other person. I love you really means I admire you. I think you're cute. Uh, I, I like your personality. It's a kind of compliment, really. And that's why uh, much of what our generation calls love is so fragile, because good looks don't last. And even the nicest personality, when you have to live with that personality 365 uh, days of the year, you will discover there are irritating quirks in it. A love that is simply a tribute to the attractiveness of the other person is all too vulnerable and fragile and rarely lasts. But Hosea's love to Gomer and God's love to Israel and God's love to us is an unconditional love, an unshakable love, an unbreakable love, a a love that will continue even when we have been unfaithful to Him. And God says, I love you. He's not saying, I admire you. I think you're wonderful. He, He knows all too well that we're not. He knows from bitter experience what it is and what it feels like to be rejected by us for the sake of utter trivialities like raisin cakes, like material possessions, like career opportunities, like the thrill of an illicit relationship or the titillation of a few nerve endings. But He still loves us. And He demonstrated that love to us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's reconciliation with Israel, the initiative that was taken. Secondly, notice the cost that was paid in verse 2. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. Here we find Hosea having to purchase back his own wife. The passage doesn't tell us why this payment had to be made or to whom it was payable. Some have suggested that Gomer had sold herself into slavery to pay the debts that she had incurred with her promiscuous lifestyle. Others suggest that she was a temple prostitute, and this was the price, uh, temple prostitute in the worship of Baal, and this was the price that had to be paid for her release from her long-term service. 
Still others suggest that this was a kind of -of out-of-court settlement to her present boyfriend, which is, if true, reveals how shallow that love really was. We can't be sure why this payment was made or to whom it was made, but it is clear that as his legitimate wife, this payment should have never been necessary. And if it was unusually charitable for Hosea to take the initiative in going after Gomer, the fact that he is willing to pay for her reveals an extraordinary generosity of spirit. Notice how he pays the sum in verse 2. So, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a a homer and a lethic of barley. A lethic was half a homer of barley. Now, the price of redemption in the Old Testament for a slave was 30 shekels of silver. And the fact that he could only raise from his bank account 15 shekels and had to make up the rest of the price from grain from his storehouse, which was probably the grain that he was saving to plant next year in his field, The fact that he had to make up the price shows how poor Hosea actually was. This was an extremely sacrificial act on the part of Hosea, and yet I I suppose it was small in comparison to the psychological and emotional price that he had to pay. Imagine the utter humiliation of Hosea having to walk into the slave market and purchase his own wife, or even worse, that he had to enter the temple of Baal and purchase back a prostitute who was his wife. Put yourself in his position. Your wife has long left you for some loose-living Casanova. She has left you to struggle, bringing up the three children on your own, two of which you don't even think are yours. Then you find the phone ringing, and uh, it's someone there to tell you that your wife has been arrested. She's in prison because she's racked up thousands of pounds of debt on her credit card, and unless uh, this debt is paid, she's going to be put in prison permanently. How would you react? Anger? Revenge? Hatred? All those surely would be natural emotions. Perhaps you would experience a a sense of vindication and satisfaction for all the wounds that she had inflicted. Revenge is sweet. Hell hath no fury like a woman spurned. It was probably a man who wrote that who had never seen a man spurned. But Hosea redeemed his own wife. And Hosea understood that day as he handed over the 15 shekels of silver and the grain that God's reconciliation to Israel would be costly to God. How much he understood, we can't be sure. But what he did realize is that forgiveness is very, very difficult, very, very costly, and never, ever cheap. Now, we know the price that Yahweh had to pay as it is worked out in Israel's uh, history uh, in terms of Hosea's domestic drama. Hosea redeemed his wife. 
He bought her back with a price, and one day God would redeem Israel, and the price he would be pay would be the blood of his own son. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1 and verse 18, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that we were redeemed, but by the precious blood of Christ. That was the, blood, the price that God had to pay, not only to effect reconciliation between him and Israel, but to effect reconciliation between him and Judah, the sister nation in the south, to effect uh, reconciliation uh, between himself and a world of sinners lost. God shouldn't have had to pay the price. We are His by right. He created us. We rightly belong to Him. But if ever we were to be brought back, reconciled, put in a right relationship with God, a ransom had to be paid uh, in order that liberty would be secured. You and I, like Israel, have aroused God's anger like that of a jealous husband. We've insulted Him. We have humiliated him. We have rebelled against him. We have insulted him. We have slapped him in the face. We have turned our back upon him and walked away. But in order to bring us back and to reconcile us to himself, he sent his son into the world to redeem a wayward people. Unless Hosea paid the ransom price, Gomer would forever be lost to him. And thank God that he was willing to pay the price to reconcile us to himself. So in this prophetic drama, God not only initiates reconciliation with Israel, he pays the price of that reconciliation. uh, Hosea's domestic situation pointed forward to a time when God would come after his people, pay the price for his for their redemption in order that they might be led back to him. The uh, initiative that was taken, the cost that was paid. The third thing I want you to notice is the patience that was demonstrated. Look at verse verse 3. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. In this verse, we see something of the great patience that was required on Hosea's part to bring about this reconciliation. Unfortunately, what is said is missed in some of our translations. We find here that Hosea's condition on receiving uh, Gomer back is that she must end her promiscuity with other men. Verse 3, you shall not play the whore or belong to another man. And of course, that makes sense, doesn't it? Hosea would take Gomer back only on the condition that she would change. There had to be this radical change in her lifestyle and in her behavior. You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. And that makes a great deal of sense. He's not going to take her back unless there's a radical change in her behavior. She is to dwell with him and live with him for many days until Hosea is convinced that she has changed. That's what the Bible calls repentance. Repentance is not just uh, 
acknowledging your sin. It's not just uh, confessing your sin. It's not just uh, admitting your sin. It's turning from your sin. It's being sorry enough to stop. And Hosea wouldn't take um, Gomer back unless repentance was in place. But there's something else here in verse 3 that is missing in at least some of our translations. The NIV obscures verse 3 a little. You are to live with me for many days. You must not be a prostitute or be with any man. And here is the bit that's not a good translation. And I will live with you. Now, the Hebrew doesn't really say that. What it, what it says is, as the ESV renders it, so I also will be with you or to you. In other words, not only is Gomer to break her physical relationships with other men, she is not going to know intimacy with Hosea himself for many days. Yes, she would be living with him. Yes, she would have to change her behavior as far as other men are concerned. But also Hosea himself, even though she was living under his roof, would not be intimate with her for a period of many days. Hosea could be sure that his relationship with his wife, wanted to be sure that his wife His relationship with his wife was more than a physical one. Now, do you see the wisdom of that? Isaiah chapter 3 does teach that forgiveness and reconciliation are possible even when one party has been unfaithful. It's hard, it's difficult, it's not easy, it's rare, but it is possible. But wisdom needs to be applied when it comes to that reconciliation. You see, often when a marriage is broken, what happens is that the trust and the the love are broken too. That trust is gone. And when somebody comes back into that relationship, until the trust is reestablished and the love is rekindled, there ought to be uh, no sexual intimacy until that trust and love are there. It's, it's almost as if courtship has to happen all over again. That trust needs to be built. That love needs to be rekindled. And when trust and love are in place, then the physical side of the relationship can assume, uh, resume. Hosea went to extraordinary lengths to redeem his li- wife. He paid the price and brought her back to his house. But not until many days had passed he resume intimacy with her until he knew, until he was sure that she had changed and he could trust her again. Now, that might seem very unnatural to us that Hosea would deny himself his conjugal rights for many days. After all, she was at home living with him. But if you think about it for a moment, you can understand how prudent Hosea's self-restraint was. You see, Gomer was a woman who for years had known nothing but physical relationships with men. She had hopped from one bed to another. In her mind, love had been reduced to simply the physical and the sexual. She didn't know what real love was. 
And what happens to a person like that is that real love actually becomes inaccessible to them because they confuse real love with physical love. All they know is superficial physical relationships. And Hosea was wise enough to know that he had to be sure and Gomer had to be sure that their relationship was based on true love, real love, and not simply physical love. And when he was convinced that she loved him, she would be taken back fully and they would be intimate again. And there's an an immensely important lesson for our generation in that. Never since the days of the Roman Empire has there been a society that has been so sexually promiscuous and sexually obsessed. Premarital purity is almost disdained and laughed at. It's a bit of a joke. Why should we wait? That's the questions that couples are asking. First, it was engaged couples. And that's teenagers that are asking that question. Why should we wait? Why should we wait until we're married? Read Hosea chapter 3 and you will know why, should, uh, why you should wait. Because real love, genuine love, lasting love cannot be achieved through a physical act in a moment. It takes time to grow and develop and mature a loving relationship spiritually and emotionally. And couples who don't want a relationship reduced to a superficial act need to work on that relationship so that they do not confuse real love with physical love. So, in marriage, when they find themselves attracted to another person, they don't confuse that attraction with love. That's the problem. They find themselves attracted to another person, and they think, well, that attraction must be love. Premarital relationships and extramarital relationships will desensitize your capacity for real love. That's the danger of pornography, and I just want to speak to the young people. If you expose your mind to that kind of junk and that kind of tripe, what happens is that you, in your mind, reduce love to a physical act, and you find yourself Um, that you find for yourself that real love, permanent love, becomes inaccessible to you. And that's why you need to wait. And that's why you need to keep yourself pure. And that's why your wedding day needs to be special because Hosea understood that he had to be patient until real love was built with Gomer and he could move forward in the reconciliation. I hope I didn't embarrass anybody. I think I'm a little bit embarrassed. But in a permissive society where purity is almost disdained, you need to understand the importance of cultivating real love, genuine love, before you embark on superficial physical relationships. I remember Hosea's relationship with Gomer was a picture of God's relationship with Israel. So how is Hosea's patience revealed in God's relationship with Israel? 
Well, as we have already seen, God would initiate a relationship, a, a reconciliation with Israel. The time would come that he would send his son in search of his rebellious people. He would pay the price of their redemption by shedding his blood upon Calvary's cross. But that reconciliation with Israel would not be affected immediately. Just like Hosea and Gomer, there would be a period of many days when there would be no intimacy between God and Israel. Look at verses 4 and 5. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, so that they're going to lose their king. There would be a period of no kingship without sacrifice. The temple would be destroyed. Sacrifices would end. Or pillar those monuments that were erected to Yahweh's faithfulness in the past would be gone. Without ephod, the priesthood would go. Or household gods, idolatry would be broken. So after many days, there was going to be this radical change in the nature of Israel's worship. All the sacrificial system would go, and the idolatry would be broken. Now, we know that when the Assyrians invaded, some of the tribes of northern Israel made themselves, uh, made their way down to Judah and pledged their allegiance to the house of David. But then they were carried into captivity by Babylon. And in Babylon, idolatry was broken. Their love affairs with the Baals ended in Babylon. They came back. The Lord Jesus came. He died upon the cross in AD 70. The Romans destroyed um, Jerusalem. And the temple came to an end. The priesthood came to an end. The pillars came to an end. The idolatry had gone, but all the sacrificial system was ended. There, was this, there would be this period of, of no intimacy, but then look at verse 5. Afterwards, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. David was dead. Who was David's who, who, who was the great king that would come? David's greater son, the Messiah. And they would seek David their king and shall come in fear to the Lord. Literally, they would tremble their way to the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. So Hosea is looking down history. And he sees a time when a long period, many days, when there's no intimacy between God and Israel. But a time would come when Israel would be reconciled to God and they would come trembling before Him in fear of Him. They would come to understand His goodness. They would come under the reign of David's greater son, King Jesus. And ultimately, they would be reconciled to God through Christ and through the price that was paid. And if you turn in your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 11, uh, Romans chapter 11 uh, and verse 25, we're told about that time. Romans chapter 11 and verse 25, lest you be wise in your own eyes, 
I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Do you see that? So Israel rejects their Messiah presently. But when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, when God's elect is gathered from the Gentile nations of the world, God's affection once more will be directed to the Jews, and all Israel will be saved, and they will embrace their Messiah, and they will embrace King Jesus. That's when that reconciliation that Hosea describes will be fully affected. And what are the What are the uh, implications of that? Well, every Christian, every Christian ought to be interested in Jewish mission. It should be the desire in the heart of every true Christian to see Jews saved and brought to the feet of their Messiah. Because there's a day coming when all Israel will be saved and Israel will acknowledge King Jesus as their true Messiah. And that's what this prophecy, just like Hosea took her, Gomer, back into his house, but he wasn't intimate with her for many days. So God hasn't forgotten Israel. He's still interested in Israel. But there's this period of no intimacy, but one day that intimacy is going to be resumed and Israel's going to fall in love with her God all over again. And she will come trembling to the Lord and to His goodness in latter days. Isn't that wonderful? God hasn't abandoned His people. The patience of Yahweh. And then can I just say, has God been patient with you? Has He been patient with you? You've insulted Him. You've rebelled against Him. You're a Christian, but you've been unfaithful with Him. You've been carrying on these illicit love affairs with the world. You love the raisin cakes. You love the trivialities rather than loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're in love with Cabri's milk tray instead of your heavenly husband, and you've been unfaithful to him. And what about if you're not a Christian and you've heard the gospel so many times? You've heard that you need to repent and face up to the problem of sin, and you need to put your trust in Jesus. You've been brought up in a Christian home. You've heard that message until it's coming out your ears. God has been patient with you, but as yet you haven't responded. As yet you haven't trusted in Christ. As as yet you haven't come trembling into His presence to seek His goodness. Can I just remind you that His patience isn't infinite. His patience, as we were thinking last week, can run out and come to an end. And if, if, if God is speaking to you this morning, give up the raisin cakes. Give up the Florentines. And put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord.